Today on the Button Up Podcast, we have Kirby Allison from Kirby Allison's Hangar Project. Great to talk to you, Kirby. Yeah, hey guys, thanks for having me. Kirby Allison down in Dallas, correct? Yep, that's right, Dallas, Texas. And you've always been there? You know, I grew up in Houston, went to school in Austin, spent some time in New York, but knew I always wanted to end up back in Texas, so I just... Um, got started with it after I graduated, came up to Dallas where my first job was. Oh, down with your friends uh, over at Mizzen and Maine. That's the main company yeah, that's I right. know in Dallas. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Kevin's a good friend of mine, actually. So yeah, Kevin. I actually he's, know Kevin. Yeah, he's, he's gone off and departed Mizzen and Maine. It's, yeah. it's kind of weird. You know, it's a small world. I've got a funny Mizzen and Maine story. So, um, you know, uh, back in the day, this is a long time ago, before Kevin started Mizzen and Maine, we shared a UPS account rep. And uh, she knew he was like trying to start Mizzen in Maine, so she put us in touch. And so Kevin actually came and sat in my office and kind of pitched me the idea of Mizzen in Maine and said, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, you've got all this experience, uh, you know, any advice you can give me. And, you know, I don't remember if my advice at all was helpful, but it's kind of funny. I mean, this was back before he had ever started. I should have quit my job and gone to work for him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't have been alone if you told him it was an odd idea. I just saw an article that said, you know, Brooks Brothers in 2013, the CEO was like, oh, nobody wants performance dress shirts. They want cotton. And they just put out a performance dress shirt this week. Yeah. That was, I mean, I'm still such a snob that, I mean, I've got a few of his shirts. And like if I'm out on the weekend with the kids or something, I'll wear them. Mm -hmm. But um, you just can't replace the hand and the feel, in my opinion, of just a 100% natural fiber. And, you know, that kind of brings it back to just the ethos of the Hangar Project, and that is quality, craftsmanship, and tradition. And, you know, all this technology is great, but there's just something in the hand of real natural materials that can't be replicated with even the best technology. And, um, you know, there's a huge market for his shirts. I mean, both of my brothers are huge Mizzen and Maine customers, but, you know, it's like, myself or you know any of my close friends that are kind of into this space with me and share my passions you know really would would never think of it mm-hmm. i guess if there's still a market for cargo shorts there can be a market for yes. for cotton yeah. shirts and for performance dress shirts and for performance dress shirts you know <laughs> i mean at least it hopefully gets more men wearing dress shirts because you know as you know i mean we're in the midst of this rebound to quality right now and you know to a certain extent i'm just happy to see men dressing up and it's like, I don't like go buy suit supply. I don't care. But if you're wearing a suit, I'm happy. Yeah, very true. And I found myself in the middle of that too. I used to wear jean shorts, but that's, that's a different story for a different time. <laughs> yeah. So the hangar project started as a school project, right? So when does that really kick yeah. off? You know, it really wasn't a school project. So, uh, you know, I went to the university of Texas at Austin and, um, this will just kind of lead you guys into the full story. And, you know, I'd always been fascinated by high-end menswear, not fashion, but classic menswear. And, it, and, and that interest really started in high school. Um, and for whatever reason, I just was always intrigued by the idea that you could have something made today the same way it was made 100 years ago by hand. That just, it just was always, always fascinated me. And... Um, you know, so I'm, I'm going to school at the University of Texas and, uh, you know, I'm on Ask Andy about clothes, which was the only thing out there at that time. I mean, this it's embarrassing, but now it was like over 15 years ago. 
Um, and so Ask Andy About Clothes was the only thing on there. The internet really had just gotten started, if you will. And, uh, you know, that's where I really kind of came of age, if you will, in terms of uh, understanding what was out there in the world. And so I'm at the University of Texas. I'm studying, you know, business honors, finance, and economics. And everyone has to take Art History 101, right? The idea of sitting in an auditorium with a thousand other kids taking Art History 101 was just something that I just was never excited about. So, you know, I'm approaching my senior year and my counselor was like, well, you've got to take art history, right? It's required. And I said, I don't want to take it. She said, well, um, you know, there's actually, and she brought this to my attention, there's this uh, costume design class in the Department of Theater and Arts in Taylor. She said, uh, and she said, you know, we've seen other kids go ask the professor if they could take this class. It was like one other person that she knew of. And if he'll let you take it, will allow you to substitute that class for your art history credit. So I said, well, that sounds cool. So, you know, I walk over to the Department of Theater and Arts, uh, and I probably was the first business student ever to set foot in that building. And I walk into this graduate professor's uh, office and tell him that I wanted to take his costume design class and tailoring and substitute that for art history. And he thought I was crazy. And he was like, well, have you ever uh, used a sewing machine before? And I said, no. And he said, have you ever even sewn a button on? And I said, no, I've never even touched a needle and thread. And he was just like, if you're crazy enough to want to take this class, I can't tell you no. So uh, he allowed me to do it. He made me come in on Fridays to take a remedial, uh, like sewing, uh, you know, class with him just on one, one hour a week on Fridays, just so that I could even do the work. And he never expected me to finish you know, the class because it, the tailoring class was actually the hardest class he taught in the entire costume design course. Because as we all know, tailoring is actually a very complex and a lot of hard work goes into it. And so he never thought I would finish the course, but uh, yeah, I, I hand tailored my own suit jacket from a bolt to fabric and I'd you know, stitched every single thread myself. And if it weren't for the help of a, a bespoke tailor in Austin, I wouldn't have had sleeves. Uh, because I never would have been able to attach those myself. But, you know, other than that, I've got the jackets hanging in my office. You know, I finished it myself. And it was that experience that really seeded and developed in a very powerful way my understanding and passion for handcrafted quality. Because for the first time, I knew in a very practical way all of the incredible work that went into a bespoke garment. And so, it was the hardest class I took in college. It was the only class in college I pulled a double all-nighter for in order to finish one of my basted fittings. And, um, you know, it really affected me. And so I graduate college. I take all my graduation money. I buy my first custom suit, coincidentally, from that tailor that helped me sew the sleeves on. And uh, it came on a plastic hanger. And it just seemed really disappointing that here was this garment that I'd spent, you know, $2,500 on, which is a ton of money at that time, it's certainly more than I've ever spent on any other garment, that was made by hand by someone that spent, you know, who knows how many hours doing this, a product of a lifetime of his passion. And it came on a plastic hanger that didn't fit. And so I just started my first job. Um, and, you know, I was on Ask Andy about uh, clothes complaining about this. And uh, a bunch of other people started just commenting on that particular thread, joining the conversation and complaining also about how difficult it was to find a high quality wooden suit hanger. 
which, you know, I'd never thought about. And so, but at that time, nobody was doing this. And so you literally had these guys that scoured the earth for the best clothing. I mean, they had their shirts made in Italy and their suits made in London, you know, traveling the globe. I mean, that was the type of person that was on uh, those forums at that time. And they were talking about how they had to go beg their Neiman Marcus sales rep for a few extra hangers. And so around that time, the idea of like, uh, you know, these group buys was really beginning. And so I just said to the group, I said, look, I just graduated college. I don't have any money, but I've got a ton of free time. I'll go out and see if I can find someone to make hangers for us. But if I do this, you guys have to prepay, right? Because I can't, I'm not going to speculate that you guys are going to buy anything. It's like and so that really, Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> I wish Kickstarter was the idea I was left with. <laughs> it's like that was the better idea that I somehow missed. But uh, but it was an original Kickstarter. That's what it was. I mean, these guys prepaid. They didn't know me from John, and they had to wait 75 to 90 days, crossing their fingers, hoping that I didn't steal their money. Um, but that was the beginning of the Hanger Project. And you know, I tried to come up with a clever name, right, like Gentlemen's Hangers, or I don't know. But, you know, my roommate at the time just said, you know, why don't you just call it what you've been calling it this entire time, which was the Hanger Project? Because what was it? It was just the Hanger Project in the same way that it, you know, was it could have been another project for school. Right. So that's how the name came about. Uh, and you got the entire story as a part of that. Yeah, I see. So it wasn't actually part of schooling, but it was a direct result of uh, yeah. what you experienced in school. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, you know, I was very involved extracurricularly at UT. And so, I, you know, I was always doing like a million projects. So, you know, I really credit the extracurricular stuff at UT with what, uh, with allowing me or kind of enabling me to start my business because it just was so natural to do it. I mean, like, you know, throw up a website, put together some, you know, some, you know, really cheap and dirty marketing. Um, you know, it was just like another school project. And did you, through college or before that, had you been exposed to entrepreneurship in any way? You know, not really. I mean, you know, I come from a family of car dealers. Um, so, you know, they were kind of business owners, but not like serial entrepreneurs. Uh, I mean, no, not really. Okay. So you, your first real brush then is, uh, is going out and sourcing these hangers. What, who, did you end up finding somebody who did them locally? Yeah, I mean, we found someone based in the United States that, you know, I mean, I really got lucky uh, in retrospect because I found a, you know, what was the best manufacturer of wooden hangers. And I didn't have to deal direct with China because, you know, there's a ton of country risk associated with that. And, you know, what we did differently, and it wasn't rocket science, um, was, you know, what I did is I just basically, I didn't, you know, I didn't innovate or invent anything new, but I basically pulled together from a bunch of different characteristics of hangers and combined it into a single hanger that no one had ever done before, right? So a two and a half inch shoulder flare, well, that's not super novel. I mean, you know, you can go get an Oxford hanger that has a two inch shoulder flare, but we did a two and a half inch shoulder flare. We combined it with a felted trouser bar and we did it in four widths and we did it with, you know, a special hook that won't unscrew. And we did it with a real high quality, you know, retail level finish that is durable. And it just was kind of all those things together that no one had done before. And, you know, whenever I developed the hangers, it was really ex developed exclusively around the concerns of in consumers, which prior to that point, no one had done. I mean, if you wanted hangers, you had to go beg your 
a retailer for hangers, or if you went to the container store, even to this day, the hangers you see at the container store are just cheap retail hangers being resold to customer consumers, you know, at like an absurd markup. But there's nothing special about it. It's the same hanger that they'd sell to, you know, Dillard's. Um, and so, you know, the hanger project was really about the idea of, you know, look, if you, you can afford, you, you can afford to invest in quality if you know how to take care of it. Your garments spend the majority of their time on the hangers. And the person that bears the cost of inadequate hangers is the consumer, right? The retailer doesn't care. They never see the garment long enough to uh, actually deal with the, the cost of cheap hangers. And so, you know, if you're someone that's got nice clothing, you need nice hangers that really protect, extend the life of the garment. And that's what the hanger project was about. I've, I've always wondered um, with like investing in like hangers in the same way as like shoe trees or like garment bags or other other things that, you know, extend the life of your garment. Have you guys ever like A-B tested like a bottom of the barrel hanger with like your hanger just to see what the long-term effect is on like a dress shirt? <laughs> well, I mean, dress shirts are, you know, probably not a great example because, you know, dress shirts have a really tight weave to the fabric. So you're not going to end up with any stretching, right? But just think about your t-shirts. I mean, whenever you pull a t-shirt out of the closet and it's got shoulder bumps, that's because the hanger was too narrow. If the hanger had extended all the way to the edge of the shoulder, you wouldn't end up with any distortion of the shoulder line with shoulder bumps. And to a certain degree, uh, the same thing happens with suits. I mean, you've all seen a suit that the shoulder line is just, you know, totally distorted uh, because it was hung on a hanger that was too narrow. Now, the most important thing is support right? So the, the size of the hanger. And the second most important thing is probably uh, the, the width, right? That is properly sized. It's not too wide or too narrow. But, you know, you can get those things out of a plastic hanger. I mean, you know, there are some Manetti plastic hangers that have a nice shoulder flare uh, that support the jacket uh, that aren't going to distort it. But the problem is with the plastic hanger is that at the end of the day, it's still plastic, you know, your hangers are one of the first things you touch whenever you go into your closet in the morning. And so, you know, my kind of approach to that is that, you know, if you're investing in high quality items that are beautifully made of fine materials, you should hang it on a proper wooden hanger. It just it honors the garment, um, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't go, you know, buy a Picasso and then, you know, have have it framed at Michael's. You wouldn't do it, you know. Um, so. Um, so it absolutely makes a difference. I mean, trousers, like a felted trouser bar, I mean, there's no question that a locking trouser bar creases the trousers across the mid-thigh. It, mm -hmm. it just happens. Now, you know, maybe some people just never notice it because it's just, that's the way it's always been, but it happens. And, you know, a felted trouser bar won't do that. You know, it won't do it at all. So do, do you find that, especially like at the beginning, when you were first getting customers and growing the business, did people kind of did you just have to find the people that already understood this and were and knew the value or is it part of it like educating people? Yeah, well, that was the hardest part, right? So, um, I mean, I got lucky in that we started on Ask Andy about clothes. Like all those guys, like they didn't need any convincing. I mean, they are the clothing fanatics. Mm -hmm. But the most challenging thing was expanding the business beyond that. Uh, and, and so it did require a certain degree of education because um, you know, unlike shoe trees, where people have always been buying shoe trees, nobody is nobody nobody 
nobody has really bought hangers. So the whole entire idea and the consumer's background of obviousness was always that I get my hangers for free. And so convincing someone that's used to getting something for free all of a sudden to pay for it, you know, has always been a little bit of a challenge and has required education. Um, and so that I think, you know, was the most challenging part of really growing the hanger project. That's why in the beginning we did a lot of PR, you know, reaching out to like the Wall Street Journal, Esquire magazine was to try to tell the story of uh, the garment care story, um, you know, to people that never thought of it before. So the first time you do the project, though, you're working at like your first job out of school? Yeah. So, yeah, I was doing bankruptcy consulting uh, here in Dallas. Um, so it was, yeah, it was like a, it was a passion project, you know, kind of a side, side hustle. Right. And then at what point do you go from, okay, this is a project that I enjoy to making the jump? Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> so the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about us. It was November 17th. 2007. And, uh, you know, I'd been doing a little bit of just PR, like a, on the side, basically sending samples to people in the press. And someone at the Wall Street Journal got a hanger. And um, that next week, they were assigned to write a article called The Catalog Critic, uh, which uh, where they basically took uh, a product, uh, shopped it from several different people, and then found an expert to compare those items. And so she said, Oh, well, this would be interesting. Why don't we do this on hangers? Um, and so, uh, yeah, that came out November 17th. It was two weeks before Thanksgiving, you know, right whenever uh, everyone starts thinking about what they're going to buy for Christmas. And we were given a full half page in the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. And it was the last page of the weekend edition, which, depending on how you read your Wall Street Journal, is the first page because a lot of people read it backwards. Um, and you know, we, it, that's what gave me the opportunity. I mean, it, it ex we exploded. I mean, we sold through all of our inventory in like four days. Um, I didn't even have a phone number on the website. And so, um, that's what, you know, that's what really created the opportunity for me to leave and go do it full time. Um, and that's all pre Shopify era. So you had, did you have, you had to like oh, hire yeah, a guy to Shopify. develop, develop had... the website. Yeah, I mean, gosh, the number of mistakes I made whenever I started the business is just staggering. I mean, it's like I try not to think about it because I just cringe. Uh, so I had a buddy who knew some web developers in Guatemala, you know, and I paid them like three grand to do a website for us, you know, and it had a custom PayPal integration. Um, so that was our shopping cart. But it was a totally custom, like there were no shopping carts then. Um and, you know, luckily it worked, but, you know, like a great example is the entire website couldn't be crawled by Google. It was like, I think not until a year and a half or two years later that I finally started working with another web developer. And even the whole entire notion of SEO was like even present for me that we realized that the website was incapable of being crawled by Google. I mean, can you imagine that? I just was like... It's like somebody drives up to your house and you're like, you know, there's no curb for your driveway here. <laughs> yes, it's like we forgot the drive. There's no front door, you know. Um, so, you know, things like that. And, you know, the first year I thought I was a rock star. The second year was me slowly realizing I had no idea what I was doing. The third year I was panicking. And the fourth year, you know, I always say is whenever I started actually growing a business. 
And that was around the time where we really, or I really began to think of us as something more than just a hanger company and really thinking us about us in terms of garment care. And so we went from hangers to garment care. So that's where the garment bag and the garment brushes came in. And then we went from there to shoe care and shoe care was, um, you know, in a lot of ways what really transformed the business because there's just a larger market for shoe care than there are for hangers. Uh, and there's more people thinking about shoe polish than there are thinking about, you know, that I need to go buy hangers. And, um, you know, that's whenever I got connected with Saphir and, um, you know, I'd been used to doing kind of doing educational tutorials back whenever we were uh, selling hangers because we had to educate people. And so the idea of doing shoe care tutorials just came naturally. And that's what allowed us in the beginning to really do such a great job selling shoe polish is because we were the first people to really teach someone how to properly maintain their shoes from, from like a European philosophy, right? I mean, Americans think of shoe care in terms of a tin of kiwi shoe polish, right? But, you know, as we've all kind of discovered, shoe care is actually a lot more nuanced and really a lot more interesting than that. And, um, you know, once we started writing those tutorials, it allowed us to what allowed us to sell, you know, instead of $12 worth of shoe polish, sell someone $100 of a shoe polish. So like the old, old school blogging days. Yeah, this is old school blogging. Yeah, totally. Totally old school blogging. Yeah. And was the and idea then, was the idea there like now that you've discovered the world of SEO to start getting some traffic uh, around like these questions that people have about clothing care? Yeah, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, I wish I'd been more aggressive on content development uh, back then. I mean, we were probably two or three years late to video. We should have been doing that earlier than we were. Um, you know, I mean, I think whenever you own a small business, it's difficult not to get tied up in the minutia of running the business to still be able to see the forest from the trees. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's one of the most challenging things. It's probably, you know, one of the things that's still challenging is, you know, it's, you know, now we're larger, you know, we've got more people, but, you know, whenever I come to work, I have to deal with payables and I've got to deal with accounting and I have to make sure that, you know, the video production guys are doing the work and that the website's running and this, that, and the other. And it's less time sitting around thinking strategically about, you know, what's the next big move for us. And, you know, I think the other challenge for me is, you know, I was 24 whenever I quit to go do this full time. I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. Now you got a wife and kid to feed. Yeah. Now I've got like a wife and three kids. <laughs> uh, three kids. Yep. Yeah, and the employees, yeah. they're all in yeah. there. So at yeah. what point then do you go from blogging to knowing that you need to do or, or getting into YouTube and Instagram? Yeah, so, uh, you know, YouTube really started more out of a project to support Facebook advertising. So we said, you know, you know, the biggest challenge for us always had been how do we market ourselves to new customers? I mean, if someone is Googling Saphir shoe polish or wooden hangers on Google, they, they find us, right? Because, you know, we're kind of the only people doing it. But the challenge for me had always been, um, how do we get in front of people that weren't looking for us, you know, in a real top of funnel marketing way. And so, you know, gosh, this was like three years ago, I suppose, seems like forever ago now, you know, Facebook was still, you know, I guess 
popular. Um, not disdained by most of the, yeah. the media. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, most people are kind of seeing Facebook for what it is now. But, but anyway, so back then it was like, well, we need to be doing Facebook because it was the hot thing. Everyone was like, oh, my Facebook marketing is incredible. It's, you know, driving so much business. And I said, well, you know, we kind of need to figure out what's going on with Facebook. And the majority of Facebook advertising at that time, at least the effective advertising, was video-based. So uh, the idea to do video tutorials was really to give us something to then promote on Facebook. And you know what we discovered really quickly was that, in fact, YouTube was doing more to drive uh, traffic than Facebook was. And so we abandoned Facebook altogether and instead just focused on exclusively doing YouTube content. Um, and it was great. I mean, it's really, I love YouTube. I mean, I love the video production because, you know, it allows us to, as a, as, as an online retailer, it allows us to bridge the gap between operating a business in some vacuum in a industrial warehouse space and actually still interacting with customers. Um, and so even though it's through video, it allows me to, you know, really maintain a relationship and interact with customers. At this point, how, how much of your, like that top of funnel would you say is paid versus uh, earned, you know, through video or other content? You know, we don't do much paid, you know, we don't do much paid, you know, customer acquisition. Uh, and we, I mean, we do kind of the basic Google stuff, but the majority of everything we do is, is YouTube based. And, you know, YouTube surpassed Google a year and a half ago as our number one source of customer acquisition. I mean, we post purchase survey everyone that transacts on Hangar Project. And one of the questions we of course ask them is how did you learn about us? And, um, you know, we get more from YouTube, you know, than we get from Google, which totally makes sense if you think about it, because um, we're able to teach people how to use the polish. I mean, people that had never thought of ever shining their shoes now are able to see what a difference it makes and they go, wow, that's amazing. I never thought about that. I want to do it. And, um, and that's how they come to us. It's hmm. really cool. Do you have a lot of uh, repeat, repeat customers or uh, like people buying like shoe polish and they come back for hangers? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think so. I mean, that's the, that's the goal at the end of the day is that someone discovers us through shoe polish and we kind of sell them in the whole entire, you know, continuum, you know, product portfolio. Um, so yeah, I mean, we try to do that through email marketing. So what, what's, what's the next big thing? Like, you know, six, 12 months out, what are you excited about? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, for us, the YouTube content, uh, continues to go from strength to strength. I mean, we just hit 75,000 subscribers, um, you know, we should be at a hundred, you know, by the end of the year, you know, we'll do half a million views a month. Um, and so I see a, a meaningful opportunity to, to do more kind of editorial kind of discovery stuff. I mean, if you look at the content that we've just recently been putting out, I mean, we spent two weeks in London, uh, kind of around the time of the world championship of uh, shoemaking and world championship of shoe shining. And we have some absolutely great content that uh, that explores the world of quality craftsmanship and tradition. I mean, we visited Huntsman, we visited Henry Poole, we did a walking tour of Savile Row. Um, we spent an entire day with John Lobb St. James's. You know, we were the only video production crew that they've allowed in there, other than the BBC. Um, so, you know, we've got some absolutely incredible content 
that is coming out right now that I think has potential to turn into something more than just a YouTube series. And so that's, I think, the next big thing for us is how do we take what we're doing on YouTube and somehow, um, you know, leverage that to reach a broader audience? So, you know, we're publishing some of our stuff on Amazon. So you can watch uh, more of our kind of feature length stuff on Amazon now. Uh, and we'd like to see ourselves, you know, doing something you know, on Netflix or on, I don't know, something. I mean, there's all these streaming services now that need content. And I think the world of like quality craftsmanship and tradition, you know, kind of like a travel series, but through the gentleman's lifestyle uh, could be interesting. Yeah, that Huntsman video, I watched that this morning. And I was like, I'm, I'm a huge like, like Kingsman fan too. And so like just to see oh, all those great. tie-ins, uh, that was so great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's... Gosh, it's so much fun. I mean, I enjoy it, and you know, I, I'm not, I'm not that weird, right? So I would think that other people. Would oh, enjoy I, it also. I feel the same. I, <laughs> I did a tour of Hor just like a month ago. I toured Horween's Leather Factory, oh, and then I yeah. toured Allen Edmonds, and I'm sitting on all this footage. And like, I, I've also watched it because I was like, all right, I need to get this video done. But it like totally inspired me to kind of work, almost finish the videos. Yeah, I mean, we want to do Horween so badly. Uh, you know, the problem is, is we, our production crew is like four people now. So in order for us to go somewhere, it's kind of expensive. Oh yeah. You know, the trip, the trip to London and Paris was like, I mean, incredibly expensive. So, um, but I think we'll be back in New York sometime soon, uh, with Huntsman to do, uh, some really interesting content with their cutting room in New York city, which is actually, uh, doing really well I and mean, they were the first Savile Row tailor to actually open up a dedicated cutting theater in New York City like outside of London and um, you know they're doing great their head cutter Ralph is incredibly talented um, so we're hoping to do some content there uh, and if we're in New York we'll, we'll definitely film some other stuff so and there's no shortage of content you know I mean there's so much great stuff I mean Shoe care tutorials, there's more of that to do. We've got an extensive series on shoe reviews that we've started filming. Um, and so, you know, we really want to help the well-dressed just learn how to take care of the wardrobes and uh, kind of support and encourage and embellish that pursuit. Nice, that's, that's exciting stuff. Yeah, it's a great thing about content. It's like there's just a never-ending list of, of fun stuff to tackle. I mean, I could never run out. I mean, you know, I mean, we spent two weeks in London and, you know, we could have spent easily another month and even then begun to just barely scratch the surface. And we haven't even touched Italy or, or France for that matter. So, you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff and, you know, we hope to continue to, to do that. And, you know, we, the way we monetize the channels by selling hangers and shoe polish. So, you know, if you need hangers or shoe polish and like our content, you know, come to the hanger project, don't go to Amazon. <laughs> um, you know, we also just released a collection of ties. That's really exciting. So we're trying to get into a little bit more uh, kind of our own branded stuff that we've developed. And uh, we've got an incredible collection of ties that are getting ready to launch. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, trying to expand the product portfolio in some thoughtful ways. Yeah, very cool, man. Well, we have a, a segment uh, called Rapid Fire that you haven't prepared for, but if you're up for it, we'll, we'll ask you, we'll ask you a series of questions. One, one or two word answers. Here we go. Oxfords or Brogues? Uh, Oxfords. Lifting or cardio? 
cardio. Loafers or sneakers? At loafers. In terms of menswear, spring, summer, or fall, winter? Uh, probably fall, winter. Nice. Morning shower or evening shower? I do both. Nice. Dallas. That's Dallas for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cold shower in the morning. I'm a huge cold shower in the morning guy. All right. Nice. I can't get started until I have one. Okay. Um, jeans, chinos, or trousers? question i mean the right answer is probably trousers but in texas i wear a lot of denim nice uh favorite james bond actor oof um gosh um i mean it's hard to you know was it daniel craig he's probably my favorite nice notch lapels or peak lapels notched cool and then last question if you're uh taking your cold morning shower getting pumped up for the day like you have a big day of meetings what song are you listening to Huh. Uh, gosh, I don't, uh, I haven't listened to a lot of classical music, to be totally honest. Um, you know, so either I, I'm not listening to music in the morning or I listen to, um, this is going to sound weird, but uh, morning prayer. You know, I like, you know, choral music. So I'll listen to morning prayer while I'm getting ready in the morning. <laughs> that <Nice>. works. <laughs> Got to set your day for success. Yeah, so... You know, there's a beautiful uh, website called Cradle of Prayer, and they uh, do the Book of Common Prayer, Morning Prayer. Uh, they record it, and you just sit and listen to it. So, you know, I listen to that a lot in the morning. Nice. Well, you've survived rapid fire. We got some. Yes, good. Did I pass? You know, how did I score? You did pass. Yeah, we, we don't. We'll, we'll get a grade due later <laughs> once once we analyze your answers against. Thumbs against... up or thumbs down? Were they the right answer? The wrong one? Yeah. <laughs> no, that was, that was that was good. Yeah, well, yeah, enjoyed we'll... this. I mean, you know, I could. Gosh, I could talk forever. You get me going on some of these things. It's like, you know, this was just it's was precursory. It's like we didn't even get into the meat. We'll have to have you back in uh, in a few months or a year and get the update. Yeah, please, by all means. And, um, you know, check out the YouTube channel, you know, Kirby Allison on YouTube. And, of course, the website, uh, webstorehangerproject.com. And, you know, we love to help the well-dressed uh, acquire and care for the wardrobes while exploring the world of quality, craftsmanship, and tradition. I mean, that's what we're about. So uh, hopefully, um, you know, most of your guys know about us. But if not, check us out. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on, Kirby. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man, and we will see you next week.